This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Boston is an expensive place to live. With average rents of $4,700 per month, typical rents in Boston are getting dangerously close to equaling the average American family income. Boston's thriving and diverse economy continues to attract new residents who then compete for residential inventory constrained by zoning, regulation, and the physical limits that come with its 400-year-old history. In response to this diminishing housing affordability, some high-profile politicians, including one candidate for mayor of Boston, have proposed rent control, or rent stabilization as it's sometimes referred, as a possible solution to stemming the tide of rapid rent increases. Indeed, rent control had, in 1970, been adopted in Massachusetts and embraced by many of its most populous cities, including Boston and Cambridge, until it was made illegal by a statewide referendum in 1994. This policy enactment and later repeal offers economists and academics a 25-year experiment, rich with data, to analyze the effects of rent control on rents, renters, neighborhoods, and cities. This rare opportunity to look to the past offers current policymakers a foundation for making economically sound decisions for our cities and regions in the future. My guest today is economist and MIT Sloan School of Management professor, Chris Palmer. Professor Palmer is also a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Palmer has done substantial research on the effects of rent control in Cambridge between the years of 1970 when it was first implemented and 1995 when it was proscribed by referendum. His analysis utilizes the neighborhood level data to compare those areas with high levels of rent controlled units with those areas with little rent controlled property. Beyond the observations made on the 25 years of the policy, Professor Palmer's work also examined the effects on Cambridge of decontrolling rents in the aftermath of its repeal. Taken in total, Professor Palmer's research offers policymakers a window into the future through a snapshot of the past. When I return, I'll be joined by economist and MIT professor Chris Palmer. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by economist and MIT professor, Dr. Chris Palmer. Welcome to Hubwonk, Professor Palmer. Thanks. Nice to be here. Well, it's good to have you, and uh, we're going to talk about our topic today. We're going to talk about rent control. It's it's in the news uh, a bit uh, lately, uh, largely because here across the river in Boston, we're having a mayoral uh, race, uh, and one of the candidates has uh, uh, included uh, rent control as, I'll just say, a policy aspiration in her campaign. Uh, rent control is not a new concept in the Commonwealth, um, and it's been, ex- it's been studied extensively, uh, of course, by you as well. But for the benefit of our our, uh, listeners who are going to hear your research, I want to do a step backward and and offer for those in our audience who don't have a PhD in economics, um, me included, uh, a little bit of uh, how uh, markets work um, from the very basic level. Let's talk about uh, supply and demand. Uh, We've all heard of those concepts. 
Uh, but specifically, how does the price of something and an apartment is something? It's it's produced by a landlord and it's uh, demanded by a tenant. How does the price of something influence its supply? Great question. So we've got a Boston-centric audience, so indulge me with a, a Red Sox-specific analogy that, oh, that always appeals to me, talking about price controls. So uh, Mayor Menino was... Um, at one point is very populous play railing about how expensive it was to attend a game at Fenway and how expensive it was for a family of four to drive to Fenway and how expensive the food was and the tickets were and everything else. And he proposed that there be a price control where the price of parking at Fenway would be capped, say $20, which by today's standards seems like <laughs> a really great deal, right? I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it too. And, uh, and I, as I thought about that, I just thought this is going to be a disaster if this ever happens. And so let me lay out the economic rationale as a primer for, for how we would think about how the price of something affects its supply. Uh, imagine that you are considering at the time whether to build a parking garage in the vicinity of Fenway. And their neighborhood's been revitalizing and there's lots of demand for parking. And then especially you have 80 some odd home games a year that you're going to be able to, to sell out. Uh, as you as Fenway fills up. And all of a sudden you find out that instead of being able to sell those spots and rent them that night for $40 a spot, it's only going to be $20 a spot because of the, the mayor's new proposal. You might not go through with that parking garage. You might instead sell that land to somebody else who builds a, a medical offices or a new apartment building or, or something else. Similarly, if you're one of those people that has a few lots on the corner of their gas station on Boylston and you normally sell them out, it's kind of a pain. It interrupts your customers coming in to buy gas, and uh, but it's worth it to you because you can get $40 a spot for it. Uh, and then you can only get $20 a spot. You back up and you say, you know what? It's just not worth it anymore for me to rent this out. And what that means is price parking becomes even more scarce at Fenway Park. So if you were trying to make it easier to park, what you've actually done is you've made it harder to park because you put a price control on that means that demand at the price of $20 a spot far outstrips supply. And so that's what we're worried about for rent control as a, as a price control from like the Econ 101 perspective. We're worried that if you put a price control on the price of apartments, then you will make it so that people will choose not to rent their apartments uh, and there could be a variety of reasons for that, or or they'll choose not to develop new housing because it will be so expensive to do so. So from its simplest perspective, that's how we think about supply and demand uh, in this context where you have a price control, a price ceiling that is below the market price um, for, uh, for rent, and that leading to fewer people being willing to supply apartments than would like to rent apartments. So what you're saying is, uh, whereas the demand for a game must, might be somewhat fixed, everybody wants to go to a ball game, and we can only have so many seats, uh, the supply is determined by how much money the supplier can earn. So the supply of, of rental units, if we go from parking spaces to apartments, is likely to go up if rents are allowed to be high, and likely to either stay the same or perhaps be converted to some other use if, if uh, prices are artificially constrained low. Exactly. I might choose to, you know what, I'm just going to convert to condos and sell those condos and just be done with renting as a landlord. That decreases the supply of rental housing. I might choose not to build new housing uh, in that case. Uh, so I, I might choose to let my relative live in the housing instead of renting it out. And all of these things uh, might reduce the stock of rental housing.
So if uh, we're talking about efficient markets and, and left unconstrained, um, rents go up, um, people complain, but pay higher rents. If, if uh, let, let's talk market fundamentals, if, if uh, people who believe in markets think um, they're efficient in their allocation of capital um, and rents are indeed high, we'll talk about those numbers, I hope, later in our conversation. Why in general are rents so high if markets are designed to give everybody um, a, a fair product at a fair price? Well, beyond just policies that cap the level of rents directly, like a price ceiling like rent control does, we also think that a lot of cities that people are quite anxious to live in have very constrained supply for other reasons. So that could be because the, of the limited availability of land. It could be because of uh, regulation and the difficulty of doing new development in an area. Um, a lot of these things combine to kind of create a perfect storm where we're building many fewer housing units than job growth in an area. And so then we have this widening where you have job growth in Boston, more people have jobs in Boston, want to live in Boston, and you're not increasing as quickly the supply of housing because of these supply constraints. Um, that makes it an increasingly uh, complex affordability challenge. So we're, we're still in the theoretical. We haven't gone into any of your observations of what actually happens, but let's talk about where we would constrain how much a landlord could charge for a, a unit in, in Boston. Let's, let's uh, pick a number like $3,000 and we constrain the amount uh, per month uh, the landlord can raise the rent. And let's assume he doesn't uh, convert it to condos and sell it. He's going to be a landlord, but he's going to make a little less money than if he had a free hand to raise it to whatever level he'd like. So given the constraint of only being able to raise, you know, let's pick a number 3% or 5%, what would be the second order effect of that kind of constraint? We, we know he, he might not uh, decide to buy more units. He might not build more units, but he's going to be a landlord. He's going to stay a landlord. What's, what's likely to be a second order effect of, of that constraint? Yeah, so one thing that the Econ 101 analysis always asserts about rent control is that it not only does it lower the quantity, and we can talk about whether modern policies try to mitigate these effects. Um, but it also says that the second order effect of rent control would be to reduce the quality of uh, rental housing. So maybe I'm a landlord and begrudgingly, I'm, I'm now just accepting smaller increases and, and, and lower rents, um, but I might be much less likely to renovate that housing. I might be much less responsive to fix that housing. And so over time, we think that it leads to uh, a decline in housing investment. So I, um, I, um, I make a living as a landlord by, by charging rent. I take some of that rent and I pay my mortgage I, and uh, I do some maintenance and whatever's left over, uh, I keep as profit. Um, but if that number gets smaller, naturally, I perhaps have less money to do the renovation. But also, of course, since I can't attract a more, um, uh, more rent because I'm constrained, there's no incentive then to improve the property to make it more attractive to uh, renters. Is, is that yes. the dynamic? Yes. All right. Um, now, renters themselves, uh, in, um, in your model, um, uh, the renters seem to be enjoying, though, then below market rent, at least in the short term. Over the long term, uh, I would imagine a building that uh, isn't improved because uh, we've constrained the uh, incentive to improve. Uh, the renter, though he pays less rent, does seem to suffer in the long term. I don't know if you call that secondary or tertiary effects of, 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 a, of a constraint on, on rent. Say more about that. 
Yeah, maybe it's a good time to pause and make a couple caveats with the Econ 101 that we've been given, uh, that I've been giving so far relative to the actual policies that exist. So if the if kind of the two knocks from the supply and demand analysis against rent controller is that it reduces the quantity and the quality of housing, modern rent control policies do try to take this into account and do try to allow for new construction to be exempt from rent control and for capital improvements to the housing to be to be uh, allowable rent increases. So that that's that's in the backdrop that that could happen. Now, turning to your question about well, uh, over time, you know, maybe this is great because I have a, a cheaper apartment, but then my maintenance is going down. I've actually talked to people who have said that trade-off sounds fine to me. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> fine to me in exchange for getting to live in the city and to have slow rent growth. I'm fine to not have updated appliances or countertops and to have kind of peeling wallpaper and and uh, and kind of warped floorboards. That all seems like a fine. Uh, exchange for me. Now, there are other people who would not find it fine. They would much rather be able to pay more for an apartment that didn't have those problems. And so there's generally an unregulated sector uh, of new construction, for example, that that is exempt, and most policies do this, where they could find something like that. So I would say that in general, uh, it's really just great for the people that get the rent-controlled housing. Yes, they might complain that uh, wouldn't it be better to have housing at cheap prices and have it perfectly maintained and renovated? Um, but for the most part, I think the people who get rent-controlled housing uh, feel great about it. And the problem really is about the the other people who don't get rent-controlled housing and their rents are higher and uh, and people in the future. I see. So what perhaps would be a, um, a politically viable solution to resistance to rent control might be to say, I'll control older houses where people are living and I won't control future houses where perhaps more affluent people who are, who are able to pay market rent for, so you have a controlled and non-controlled, very, very different dynamic, uh, but in theory satisfies both the market for, for you know, new units and the market for people who would trade maintenance for lower rent. Right. Right. The, uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts Rent Control Enabling Act in 1971 exempted all construction built after January 1st of 1969. And so they were trying to say, dear future developers, we want you to have full incentive to build housing in Massachusetts. We absolutely want there to be more supply and we don't want that to be clouded by rent control. And maybe part of that is, like you said, it differentiates a little bit. It allows people that want the nicer amenities inside their apartment to be able to have options to do it. But I think one of the core reasons here is to just make sure that there's still enough of a reason to increase supply. So we've jumped from the theoretical to the actual. So let's take off our economics hat and put on history hats, right? Let's talk about what happened in Massachusetts. This was, uh, you mentioned back in 1969, 1970. Um, and and I, ultimately, I don't want to jump ahead, but we had roughly 25 years where uh, we could have rent control in the Commonwealth. Uh, so let's go back and uh, talk about the perhaps worthy arguments for rent control back uh, in 1970 and the justification and uh, ultimately which uh, parts, which cities adopted uh, uh, rent control at that time? So there was uh, widespread inflation around 1970. Think of this as like the Nixon era price controls, uh, mm -hmm. the kind of across the economy, but, but certainly housing was an acute concern. And there was generally, it was deemed to be a, a sh an emergency shortage of housing. 
And so what the state did was pass a law that if you wanted to, a local town could or city could enact a rent control ordinance and by local rule. And so Boston, Brookline, Cambridge were the ones that instituted it and kept it for the longest amount of time. There were many other cities, I can't remember off the top of my head, that enacted rent control for a short period of time from like 1970, say, to 1978. But by 1994, only Boston, Brookline, and Cambridge were left with rent control ordinances. Everyone else that had started them, in, in even though they were allowed to, in the state of Massachusetts had, had ended their rent control ordinances. And Cambridge, Brookline, and Boston felt like they had an ongoing shortage and an ongoing affordability crisis. And to prevent displacement and to try to preserve housing affordability, they were continuing to have their rent control ordinances. I see. And ultimately, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but ultimately it was a referendum that ended it and made it effectively illegal to have rent control in, in Massachusetts. That was in uh, 1994, the referendum. Right. Every time the landlords put it on the local ballots, there's many more renters than owners <laughs> in Cambridge. And uh, and Cambridge is a progressive place, ditto for Boston. And so they were just defeated handily every time they put it on a local ballot. So they decided to instead attack the rent control enabling ordinance at the state level, and they put it on the statewide ballot for a statewide referendum in November of 94. So it won in in Massachusetts, but lost in the or of the cities of uh, Brookline, Boston and Cambridge, right? Yeah, lost fairly overwhelmingly in the actual places that had it, which is kind of a funny irony is that you had people all over Massachusetts voting on whether Boston, Brookline and Cambridge should be allowed to have rent control. But that was actually part of the argument that the landlords made during the campaign was the Small Property Owners Association said, look, there is a redistribution at the state level of state aid to various cities. And by devaluing their housing stock, Boston, Brookline, and Cambridge are bringing in fewer property taxes, and they need more state aid for their schools than they could generate on their own if they didn't have rent control. And that's one of the things that appealed to people outside. But it was a very close election. I mean, it was like 51% to 49% voting to, uh, to eliminate the Rent Control Enabling Act. So um, your research, uh, we have 25 years of data. Uh, so we've just talked about theoretically what would happen. Um, uh, we've talked about whether people liked what happened, but let's talk from an economist perspective. You actually focused on Cambridge. Uh, what made that the city that uh, was most appealing for your study? Well, what was nice about Cambridge is we have really great data from the rent control board as to which properties were rent controlled and which properties weren't. So that was kind of the biggest benefit was that we could say within a fine geography and there was variation across the city, this neighborhood had 60% rent control, this neighborhood had 31% rent control, this neighborhood had 11% rent control. We could do that street by street and block by block. That's great. Um, and as you say uh, earlier in the show, you said uh, it was really um, uh, binding older properties. It left newer uh, uh, properties alone. Uh, so I can assume then if you could go by a neighborhood by neighborhood analysis, you could see the concentration of uh, rent control from one area to another, which you know I guess offers a contrast. You can say a, a neighborhood that had no rent control behaved one way and a rent neighborhood that was mixed or all rent control behaved another way. Exactly. The way we approached Cambridge was as if every block was a little laboratory to see what happens if you remove rent control. And so the block where you get rid of rent control that was 100% rent controlled should have very different effects than the block that had 10% rent control. And you can look up and down that gradient to try to understand what were the effects of ending rent control. 
As, as an aside, uh, this is, is a question uh, I've always wondered. How did those who were in rent-controlled units uh, get selected? Were they based on need or could a, a, um, a uh, university professor or uh, someone who, uh, you know, doesn't make very much money? Are they both, were they both able? I mean, uh, Cambridge- This is a great multiple, question. Uh, you, know, you know, the guy who sweeps the floor and the, the, the dean yeah. of the college uh, are all in Cambridge. Right. We have a strong sense of who we are trying to prevent, the dis- of, of who rent control is designed to serve. People who are at risk of being displaced, people who are at risk of not affording to live in the city, to, of, of not being able to afford their, their rent. But rent control is a blunt instrument in that regard. It's not what we would say is, is means-tested. A means-tested program is something like um, SNAP benefits, food stamps. There is a test based on your income to see if you have the means to pay for your own nutrition. And if you're below that threshold, then you get those government benefits. Rent control is not means tested. There's no income check. There's no verification that you need this. So there's actually speculation that what a landlord would do in this situation is, well, if I have to rent below market, at least I'm going to get someone who's going to pay their rent every single month. And it actually opens that up for the landlord to just make that decision. So one of the things that they did in the campaign in 1994 was to put a billboard on the pike <laughs> that had pictures of famous wealthy people that were living in rent-controlled apartments. And it was like the Supreme Court Justice of Massachusetts and the mayor of Cambridge and the famous Harvard professor who was a libertarian, interestingly <laughs> enough. Uh, and, and these people were living in rent-controlled apartments. There was no prohibition on a landlord choosing to rent to whomever they wanted. They just had to rent at these lower limits. And so that did lead to what we'd say is misallocation, where you had uh, the people that were able to find rent control departments, not necessarily being the type of people we think kind of need rent control departments. So uh, another order effect would be if I'm a landlord and I am constrained in what I can charge, I'll choose the uh, uh, billionaire over the barista because I can't discriminate with price. I'll just discriminate based on who I'd prefer to have as my tenant. Potentially. That's exactly the kind of thing that, that we would be worried about. Yeah. Now, were the uh, with the control, were did the state mandate how much uh, rent could go up each year? Was it a a, a large, uh, pretty generous cap, or was it fairly fairly tight? So that is something that was unique about the Massachusetts experience. Most modern rent control laws let you start at an unregulated starting point. So if somebody moves out, then you get to rent that mark that rent mark that unit out at whatever the market price is. And then it caps the percentage increase from that. So that's how San Francisco is. That's how New York is. And so it would be a cap that, you know, this year we're allowing everyone to raise their rents by 3% or 1% or something like that. In Cambridge, it was different. There was a book in City Hall and it had a list of every single apartment in Cambridge and what the dollar maximum rent was. So I used to live on Audrey Street in Cambridge. I could go into that City Hall, I could look up Audrey Street and I could see 50 Audrey Street, what was the rent? And it was $713. And I knew that my landlord could not pay me more than that. And so that was how it worked in Cambridge. Um, and even if I moved out, the, the rent would still stay the same. Now you were asking how, how much did it increase? In the beginning, during the 70s, during the kind of big era of inflation, it was a very strict policy. Rents didn't increase very much at all. And then after that, they started to increase them kind of across the board um, by a few percent a year. Okay. Now, your work primarily studies more what happened when it was lifted uh, in 1995. In other words, you've got a sort of a a fairly uh, long-term rent control effect, uh, 25 years. And now, now here we are in the brave new world of 
you know, market forces yeah. uh, um, uh, coming to bear. At the moment before we lifted uh, rent control, did you measure the difference between the average rent in a rent control unit to the market rate? In other words, how much over 25 years had um, rent control constrained rent below market rates? So our estimates are that rent controlled apartments were renting at a 40% discount to a comparable market rate apartment. So this gap had just grown over time over those 25 years, like you said, and was quite substantial. Interestingly, there was no gap between rent controlled and market rate apartments where the tenants didn't know that they were rent controlled. So the key <laughs> was knowing that you had this rent control, knowing about the book, knowing about the limit. And if you knew about the limit, then it was like a 40% discount. So it was just a sort of a, a statutory a limit. Um, but uh, I guess this sort of begs the question, did you make any sort of qualitative uh, observations about the condition of rent controlled units with uh, non-rent controlled units? We haven't done that in our paper, but uh, a former advisor of mine, David Sims at Brigham Young, he used um, the American Housing Survey data to look at that. And he could see much more likely to have a non-working toilet or a hole in the wall or peeling wallpaper. These kind of maintenance effects were pretty strong. That was what he could tell had happened before the end of rent control. So now, okay, we walk through this door and there's no more rent control. And uh, presumably the, the, those units that are 40% discounted now become market rates. Uh, probably those, many of those people living there weren't very happy, um, but now um, here we are, they're living in Cambridge and uh, presumably uh, their rent went up. Um, on a high level, um, uh, I, I, were you able to quantify the value of all the property in Cambridge before versus all the the property in Cambridge afterward. Um, uh, I, I did read your paper and I do know the answer, but I'll, I'll let you put some uh, skin on that bone. So then you'll have to, you'll have to tell me the numbers because um, <laughs> I don't have them off the top of my head, but it was something like the total value of residential real estate in Cambridge went from 7 billion to uh, from 6 billion to 7 billion um, because of the end of rent control. Maybe it was a $2 billion effect and a billion of it came from the direct effect and the, uh, a billion of it came from the indirect effect. Well, I'll, I'll say, I, again, I've, I've got the pen and paper. And yeah, I knew what I was going to ask. You, <laughs> you didn't have it. All. But I'll just say that the whole value of all the property in, in Cambridge was $7.7 billion before the, uh, the cap was lifted. And as you say, uh, the value of all the property went up in, a, in several years after the cap was lifted by $2 billion. What I, what I, you know, so a $2 billion increase over 7.7, that speaks to your point of the entire state saying, okay, look, if, if Boston, Cambridge, Brookline are all, let's say $2 billion undervalued and therefore uh, collect that much less in taxes, it, it hurts the entire Commonwealth. But more, what I found more interesting was um, once that cap was lifted and that 2 billion returned into value, uh, it actually accelerated not just um, maintenance in the controlled units, as you say, the, the fixing the toilets and, and re reapplying the wallpaper, but 1.7 billion went into investment into new uh, units um, because, you know, again, this is a second order effect. We now had a, a, an incentive um, to build more in a better city. Can you say more about this effect? Yeah, we found that fascinating. You know, the um, 
typical analysis of a price control, like the Mayor Menino parking one that I laid out, doesn't think about these, what we call externalities, these spillovers into seemingly unaffected, seemingly um, isolated and independent sectors of the market. But that's what we found. Say you were a a two-family house or a three-family house that was not rent controlled because the owner lived in, in one of the units that was exempt from rent control. And you were near a building that had deregulated its rents because of the end of rent control, then your property value went up too. And the, the, the sale price that you were able to get for your property, which was a never rent controlled property in Cambridge, but just proximate to a lot of rent control went up. And so part of this seems to be that the maintenance is not just interior maintenance, part of it is exterior maintenance. And so the neighborhood is upgraded in some sense and becomes nicer. Part of it becomes that the market is now able to express its value for living in a neighborhood and rents are just going to rise and property values are going to rise for that entire neighborhood. Part of it could be amenities that are changing in the neighborhood. One of the things that we found happens after the end of rent control is that crime fell in neighborhoods that had had the biggest turnover because of rent control. And when we've talked to the Cambridge police, it's not so much that there were criminals and rent control, ending rent control priced them out. It's that the people that moved in were much more likely to make security investments, to put bars on their first floor windows and get security systems and call the police and, and have a neighborhood watch. And that decreased crime. So there's a lot of neighborhood change that leads to property values rising in neighborhoods that have the most rent control. I think you make a good point and you use a, a sophisticated economics term we've used before on Hub One called externalities. These are these are effects that aren't captured in the transaction. And I think uh, listeners may be um, um, looking at, a, say, a, a morality play where this is a contest between tenants and landlords and the landlords wear the black hat and the tenants wear the white hat. But by constraining uh, rents with rent control, there are many negative externalities that are internalized or experienced or paid for by people who are not party to the transaction. These are people who are not connected to rent control units at all. That's essentially what you're saying. Precisely. We have to think expansively about who bears the cost of rent control. And it's not just landlords. It's also owner-occupied housing that's nearby. Now, you mentioned uh, there's some turnover. Uh, Naturally, when someone's rent goes up, uh, they may decide to live elsewhere. Was there a lot of turnover? Uh, Presumably, if you've got a 40% uh, discount, uh, you're going to have to pay, uh, do the quick math, um, uh, 60% more to get back to 100. I I don't know (laughs) on the fly, but um, you said, you know, some, some, uh, there were um, Harvard professors uh, and (laughs) celebrities. Uh, maybe they stayed put and paid the higher rent, uh, but did a lot of other people uh, were forced to leave? So, so there was a hardship exemption to the repeal of rent control that if you had low income or a disability or you were elderly, you could apply to have a two-year extension on your uh, rent control. And only 7% of Cambridge tenants applied from that, which could be a combination of there were lots of people that weren't eligible for that. There were lots of people that didn't need rent control. Uh, it also could be that it was... People were unaware of it and didn't know how to apply for it. But uh, we do see an increase in turnover. We do see people to be more likely to move out of a unit, and we see new people to be more likely to move in. Um, that's that absolutely happens, and uh, that was part of the point of rent control was to prevent that kind of displacement from happening. There were cartoons at the time, political cartoons that predicted that there was going to be a a rash increase in homelessness and a bunch of kind of middle-class families moving out. And and we didn't see that. We saw an increase in turnover. We didn't see a big uh, demand for the hardship exemption 
Uh, and we definitely saw the character of neighborhoods change. So only 7% of the 100% of people living in rent control uh, applied for this uh, hardship exemption, essentially saying uh, we can't afford to pay the higher rent and we perhaps can't even afford to move. We, we need this. And so theirs was extended for a, a certain period of time. That's right. And, and landlords probably didn't snap the rents back up to market by a, a 60% increase to get all the way up to 100% immediately. You know, they had leases that they had signed and they couldn't raise the rent within a lease. And uh, probably they value having a long-term tenant relationship is better than rolling the dice on a new tenant. So probably most landlords increase the rent slowly over time. We don't have great rent data to look at this. Um, but probably that also mitigated some of the like flood of people leaving Cambridge is that uh, probably it was a slower process than that. So what we well, once we lifted the um, uh, rent control, um, naturally those units were improved. The uh, units around them improved. The neighborhood around all of them improved. You mentioned earlier that you did uh, analysis uh, uh, block by block, neighbor, neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, one would guess the communities that had the most rent control were the most dramatically improved. Uh, did that follow with your analysis? Did it did it map? Was there a direct correlation between the degree to which a neighborhood was controlled versus? Yes, controlled? exactly. It just lined up um, with what we would predict where um, by and large, the more rent control you had, the more your neighborhood property values were going up in percentage terms. So I don't want to make a, a, a reason leap from uh, your observations to general trends and, and, and or general principles that we talked about uh, early on. I want to get back to this notion that um, price determines uh, both quantity and quality of units. Uh, was there anything surprising to me so far? Your research um, suggests that our original conversation about the hypothetical effects of rent control actually played out in both. Uh, the effects of Im implementing rent control and uh, reversing those effects once rent control was lifted. Were there any su surprises in your analysis? Well, you know, one thing that we couldn't quite get at was how much of the new construction in Cambridge, and there's been a substantial amount of new construction of apartments in particularly East Cambridge uh, over the last 20, 25 years, if we could attribute any of that to the end of rent control, we were loath to do it. We were reluctant to do it is what I should say, because the rent control ordinance exempted new construction. So I have talked to developers that are say, I know that new construction is exempted, but I don't know who will be in power in five years and whether they will try to change the, the uh, year built exemption date. So it's possible that it has a chilling effect on development, but that's just not something we could look at to see whether this was really the, the contributing factor to some of the um, boom in construction that we've had in Cambridge. So that was not necessarily something that was surprising, but something that was harder for us to look at. I think we thought there might be more turnover than there was. We, we, were, we expected to see a substantial amount of turnover and, uh, and we did, but it wasn't as, uh, as dire as was foretold. So you you can't you can guess but not know what's in the mind of a potential developer or the marginal developer saying I might want to uh, build a building in Cambridge but owing to the fact that uh, rent control might be reinstated that's a fear of some future diminishment of, of their value but also uh, if there had been rent control and it, even though their building wasn't affected you'd be putting a building that was surrounded by rent control which you know inherently lowers its value and you could put that same building in a, in a, a city that didn't have rent control and perhaps uh, enjoy better returns. Is, is that fair? 
I do think that these externality concerns come into play. Rent control, as you say, is a blunt instrument that doesn't directly help people who might need help. Uh, what do you think could make uh, property less expensive? Great questions. Um, so I'll, I'll highlight two things um, in, in response. I think in general, rents appreciate quite rapidly when supply is constrained. And we haven't had rent control in Boston for 25 years but we have had constrained supply in the sense that you can't build east of Boston because there's water <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Boston is, is uh, there, there are spots where you could probably put in more buildings, but it's already pretty dense. Add on top of that, it's not uh, a cheap place to buy land. And so if you are going to buy the expensive land and pay for the expensive construction costs and deal with all of the regulation to get your, your building permits approved, then you probably want to buy you want to build the highest margin property you can to recoup your initial investment. And so a lot of the new construction that happens has been at the upper end of the distribution of, uh, of targeted at higher income folks. And so normally we believe in filtering. You build housing at the top of the market. And then over time, as that housing becomes older and newer housing is built, that housing eventually becomes workforce housing for the middle class. And Boston has had such intense job growth that that filtering hasn't quite happened. And so the housing that's happened recently has kind of been too little too late from the perspective of being able to alleviate the rent burden of someone who's at the, the middle of the distribution, say. So to use your parking garage analogy, were we to say we, you know, the, the parking rates are too darn high, uh, if we allowed developers to build even fancier parking spaces that charged more, perhaps you know, you park your car and uh, they wash and wax it, fill it with gas, but it's 200 bucks for a, a game day spot. Uh, by allowing that, ultimately more garages would be built. And then ultimately each of those parking spaces because of competition would become less valuable because there'd be uh, ultimately a supply that would, would uh, reach the demand and we'd have some market equilibrium there. Right, and that brings up an important point. Sometimes when economists say, what we need is supply. People say, well, we've had supply and we haven't ever seen rents come down. And so to be clear, we don't think that the last developer in would build the building that would make rents fall. He would choose or she would choose to, to build their housing somewhere else where rents are still rising. We think that by unconstraining supply in an area and building more housing, we will slow the growth of rents in the future. But in terms of bringing down rent in levels, if we think it's already too high, uh, supply was probably not the right solution to bring the average rent from 3,000 something down to 2,000 something. That's just not gonna happen with supply. So turning to your question about this being a blunt instrument, means-tested rent vouchers for low-income families are probably the best way to present, prevent displacement of the people that we're most worried about. There's uh, pros and cons of these relative to rent control, but the housing choice voucher program that is uh, administered through the Boston Housing Authority does exactly this. If you qualify for this and you can get one of these vouchers, they're fairly scarce, then you get to use that to pay some of your market rent, but it makes that rent cheaper for you and subsidizes it. And you have to qualify for it by demonstrating your need. For it. And so that will be not a blunt instrument. That's a targeted instrument. That's more like precision medicine to protect exactly the families that are the most vulnerable. I don't want to be uh, Scrooge here. I think that seems far better solution than rent control. But if every uh, low income person has now, let's say, an extra thousand dollars given to him by the government, 
uh, wouldn't that be captured by landlords who now know that everybody in their market or everyone with demand for their property now has a thousand more dollars to spend on? Yeah, there is evidence of exactly that happening in the UK, for example, that uh, that rents do go up if the vouchers become more generous and you're in an area with high voucher usage. HUD has a bunch of regulations around this to make sure that people are not paying more than fair market rents. Fair market rents, it's a bit circular because they're determined by the average market rents. And if average market rents go up because the vouchers become more generous, then uh, then it's, it's hard to get ahead of this. Um, but probably the effect doesn't happen one for one. So you still are making a substantial benefit to the families that do obtain them. So still not a perfect solution, but a, a more targeted, tailored solution uh, to the problem. And I think most of all, again, um, I think the most pernicious effects of rent control uh, is that it may constrain supply, which uh, if your goal is to make rents cheaper, uh, you have to uh, accept, or maybe you don't, that rent control for those who don't have rent control units probably pay, pay more because they're competing for fewer units. It just seems economically certain that this would happen. Is, is that your... Yes, General there's option. good evidence on this at this point, especially from San Francisco, that if you have rent controlled, uh, if you have more rent control in an area, that's going to make the non-rent control departments in that area harder to find and more expensive because people are not uh, moving as much and they're going to be fewer units to go around, fewer units for people to find. Everyone's going to bid up those non-rent controlled units and they're going to be more expensive. So, so like supply, rent control doesn't really help rents today to become cheaper. So if the worry is that rents are already too high for a particular group of people to afford, there's nothing about rent modern rent control laws that's going to fix that. If they can't afford it today, they won't be able to afford it tomorrow. And uh, similarly on, on supply, right? If you build more supply, it's probably not going to decrease the amount of rent. It's just going to make the future a little bit more tenable. At the same time, as you do that with rent control, you try to slow growth, it does make other housing in the city and other housing in the future more expensive. So something that might be um, designed to help people afford rent, ironically, has in the long run, the opposite effect. The law of unintended consequences. We're getting close to uh, the end of our time together. Um, you, you, you offered some uh, interesting um, insight as to alternatives to rent control if you really are trying to help people afford better rent. Uh, many of our legislators and our governor listen to the show. Would there be any you know, legislation that we haven't covered or any um, beyond um, uh, effectively vouchers that you would recommend uh, to help us grow and allow more people to live in this wonderful city or community of Boston and Cambridge? Sure. There's there's interesting um, policy innovations on the housing side. I'll just mention a couple of them. Um, one of them is to allow for modular apartment buildings to be built. And so there's some developers and some architects that have gotten quite adept at this. They can manufacture housing off-site, and then they can almost link and log together apartment buildings with some pretty impressive construction technology that really brings down construction costs. So if you're hoping to not wait around for filtering to happen and just build housing that's immediately uh, affordable, then you can use this technology to do it, this uh, modular, modular housing. You can also fund a lot of that with the low-income housing tax credit, and uh, that subsidizes the uh, the the landlord and the developer to build this kind of housing, uh, provided that they set aside and have inclusionary housing where they means test that some of it goes to a particular income segment. So that's another thing that helps on the supply side. 
Um, there have been efforts in different places to allow uh, accessory dwelling units or secondary dwelling units to change the zoning so that you can renovate your garage and rent it out as a guest house um, so that you can build another apartment on top of your house or renovate your, your basement and rent that out. Uh, sometimes this ends up being a uh, kind of a black market for housing and it's quite substandard housing. And the idea is that if we can bring that out of the shadows and legalize it, then we can regulate it, we can inspect it, and we can increase a lot of supply by making the housing that we have more dense in this way. So Oregon recently eliminated single family zoning by right uh, to be able to promote some more of this density. So allowing people to more efficiently use the property they already have is one solution and sort of mass produced units uh, built off site um, uh, can help drive down the cost of of production. I would also imagine it would also drive down the cost of permitting. If, if you've designed something successfully and you've gotten approved on lot A, why wouldn't the same exact technique be approved for lot B? I would think, you know, uh, yeah, I would think inspect, that would also help. Yeah. Right. You don't have to inspect every car off the line for safety. Uh, right. The first one survives. You can build a million more just like it, I would yeah. imagine. So very, very, very good ideas. Well, you've given our listeners something to think about uh, and uh, you've helped us understand uh, the nuances and complexity of, of rent control. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm curious about the, uh, you know, the political um, uh, conversation. Um, rarely do we delve so deeply into the issue and really understand it. You've helped us a great deal. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor Palmer. My pleasure. Take care, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher, your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help others find Hubwonk, uh, it'd be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, it's always welcome for you to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episodes, you're welcome to reach out at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.